If you have your Bibles, won't you please open up to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 verse 14 this morning. Luke chapter 16 verse 14. And I'm going to be sharing with you the final parable that Jesus shares. It's his parting shot to his critics who are giving him a hard time about his ministry. And uh, we've been jumping around a bit. But um, I'd like to read from verse 14 of chapter 16 in Luke. And uh, we'll be looking at Lazarus and the rich man this morning. So let's read, read together from Luke chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination, which means it's detestable, it's loathed in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Since then, since Jesus is coming, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it, or everyone is forcefully urged into it. But it, is, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And he tells in this story in verse 19. Let's read together. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that, that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment." But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This morning, if you remember, in our journey through the section of Scripture, Jesus is being criticized for two things. 
One was that the kind of people Jesus was attracting to his ministry were the kind of people, the good religious society in the Jewish uh, uh, kingdom or Jewish territory did worked so hard to reject. And uh, we remember we said that tax collectors were hated and they had their own title because sinners weren't enough for them. And uh, so they got their own category. And a sinner was somebody who was shunned publicly. They were not allowed into the synagogue, nor did you greet them in a social circle. You rejected them. But Jesus says to these Pharisees, you know, the irony of all of this is, is that Pharisees, you suffer from the same sin that you are rejecting these people for. So you reject tax collectors because of their corruption and greed, but meanwhile, you guys are lovers of money. He also says, Pharisees, you reject these sinners, but mind you, the thing that motivates you in life is the same thing that motivates them. What the world exalts among men is what you're after. And so we see again, we saw it in the parable of the older brother, these Pharisees lacked any objectivity about their true spiritual state because the very sins they were giving these guys a hard time for, they themselves were doing. And we said that this is what self-righteousness does. It blinds us to the spiritual state that we really are in. But Jesus has something profound. He says, but God knows your hearts. So you might get away with it for the men, but actually before God, he knows exactly how we tick inside. And so this morning, he said, as we read to these Pharisees, you lovers of money, he says, well, I'm going to tell you about a rich man. That's how he... He starts his story. He says, you like money? Well, let me tell you about what happened to a rich man that he knew or that he tells a story about. So there's four major things that I wanted to look at, Tom and God willing. The first is this, the contrast of circumstances in this life. The contrast of circumstances in this life. There is a dramatic contrast in the story between Lazarus and the rich man. The second thing is the reality of heaven and hell. The third is how we are to be ready for heaven. That's the most important part, point, most important point of this whole story. And fourthly, perhaps when we we can revisit this at another time, but I'm going to just touch very briefly on a very important point of the relationship between God's word and signs and wonders. And there might not be enough time, but uh, we'll see how far we get. So, first point. The contrast of circumstances in this life that we see in this text. Well, we have a really, really poor guy called Lazarus. He's got nothing, right? Zip. He has health issues, okay? He's got sores that dogs come and lick and bring relief that way. He's hungry. He sees this rich man's table, the stuff being thrown into his dustbin, and he longs to be fed. doesn't even say he gets access to that, but he longs to be fed with what is thrown away from the rich man's table. We also see him as desperately alone. He doesn't have any company except stray dogs. We see no family, no education, no employment, and uh, we see that his skin lesions, his health condition, gives him a really tough time socially. Let me tell you, nobody wants to be around a person with oozing lesions on their hands and feet. It's very difficult to become close to somebody socially like that. And so he's an outcast in society. He's at rock bottom. But I ask you this morning, 
who's the one saved in the story? It's the poor guy. It's Lazarus. He goes to Abraham's bosom or side, which is Jesus' nickname for heaven. So hold to that thought. Second is here we've got a rich man. This rich man, he has everything that his heart could possibly desire. He is clothed with the best wardrobe. It would have been Gucci or Gabbana or one of those uh, guys. He's got purple, which is a royal color. It is the most expensive color you could purchase. And it's normally a sign of authority. The Roman emperor himself wore purple. He also has a fine linen undergarment, which was a very expensive kind of cloth. This man lacked nothing of luxury in his wardrobe. Nor did he lack in the size of his house. He actually had a gate. If you had a gate in the, in the, in the Eastern world, you were something. So to even have a beggar outside of your gate, you were quite the man that was, uh, uh, you had your mansion. It's normally a villa type building. He also ate sumptuously, not on special occasions, but every day. Whatever was the best in the city, he got in front of him when he ate. And uh, he was probably very influential and well-known. And so we know that when he dies, they said he was buried. He actually got a funeral. I bet many people attended. But Lazarus, we don't even know if he was buried. We don't even know if he was missed. Probably the only thing that was thought of when Lazarus was absent from the gate was, we're so grateful this inconvenience is gone. But who's the guy going to hell? Who's the guy going to Hades? It's the rich man. And I want to draw a very important point from this today. It is the fact that, Christians, there can be intense times of suffering for the believer. We had Jo sharing this morning, and it, it was not a mistake that she shared what people have to give up in Libya. Should not have said that over the internet, <laughs> online, but anyway. But in this country, if you become a Christian, you are at risk of losing everything. So for Nabil, who's in Tunisia, he had to give up his place of residence, his possessions, literally with the clothes on his back. He arrives in a country without any friends or family. And here is a man, what he is experiencing for Jesus. And I want to say this morning, this parable pokes its finger in the eye of a popular teaching that is ruining the church, in my opinion, in this current day and age. It is the health, wealth, and prosperity teaching. And it sells us the lie that attached to our salvation, God guarantees comfort, but not only comfort, success. It guarantees health, guarantees wealth, it guarantees success in every area of life. And the lie that it sells is this, is that if you are not experiencing it, there is something deficient in your faith. My friends today, we reject that wholeheartedly. Because on this side of the grave, Christ can call the Christian to a position where the way he rescues you is death. Martyrdom was not something unfamiliar in the early church. And I want to say for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, the cost of Christ, the answer to prayer for deliverance is God says, I'm taking you home. And that was Lazarus. Lazarus gets met with angels. Can you imagine a guy who is not known on earth at all? Here he is. He's lying in front of the gate, and he's dying of a physical ailment. And in this world, he is not known. 
He's not praised. He's got nothing in the bank account. But in his moment of being rescued from his distress, he is met in the most glorious manner possible. Angels come and meet him. It takes, we have to remember this, church. The person who comes to faith in Christ might be poor this side of the grave, but in the next life, he is the richest man on earth. Because when his last breath is given, my friends, he enters into the greatest glory that no money on earth or glory on earth can give you. But the reality is for you and me, church, Christ can call us to suffer. And in the moment of suffering, Jesus says to us, take heart. Why does he say that to us in in John 16 verse 33? He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Why would Jesus say that to us? Because in opposition, in, in complete opposite to what these prosperity teachers are preaching, Jesus knows that when trouble hits the Christian, the first area of vulnerability is to doubt God's love for us. And I want us to call out some of these prosperity teachers this morning and say, these guys, church, be careful. But you know what? I was gently rebuked by John Piper. He said, you know, each of us have a a love for the prosperity gospel in our hearts. Because the second benefit is taken away in this life. We complain, don't we? We feel hard done by. When Jesus asks us to give up something that is dear to us, we don't like the package. But friends, this morning, you need to know that we only enter into the fullness of Jesus through obedience to whatever he tells us to do. And if that means losing glory in front of your friends for Christ, that means taking that cut in pay because you don't want to do dodgy business. If that means you take the flack for being a Christ follower in whatever situation you find yourselves in, you embrace it wholeheartedly. God is not against you. He's being for you. Because ultimately what you are doing for Christ, like Lazarus' faithfulness to Jesus, will give you a glorious entry into a life that this world cannot compare to. And so we stand. We embrace it. But the second big point this morning is this. Is the reality of heaven and hell. And I want to say, Jesus has a sense of humor because... He says, though there might be an unequal or inequality in circumstance of life, there is equality in death. And every man will face, no matter how healthy you try and be today, I guarantee you one day you will die. And no matter how much money you have that could afford the greatest medical aid, I'm telling you now, one day you will die. It does not matter how wealthy you are or how poor you are. There is one thing in which we are equal on, and that's death. And there's a few things about the afterlife that we need to know about this morning. The first is this, is that when we die, there are one of two places that we go to. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom or side, and this is the nickname Jesus gives for heaven. He also called it paradise. Remember when he says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That's right. But then there's this place called Hades, and in this parable, it specifically has to do with hell. And that's where the rich man goes. And we know in this story, it's also important that we go there immediately after we die. There is some teaching that goes around that the soul goes into a state of sleep. My friends, when you die, the comfort is you go be with Jesus or the discomfort is you won't be. It is immediate. And Paul said it like this. When Jesus said it, first of all, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He said to the thief, there was no time span. And Paul put it like this. He said, we are confident If you had to ask Paul about the afterlife, it was one of the things that drove him in his ministry. He was totally confident about this point. He said that 
We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In other words, he said, when we leave our bodies, immediately we're in the presence of the Lord, if you're saved. We also see that the afterlife is important because one of these two places, both of them, in whichever one we land in, they are eternal. They are perpetual. When you're in one, you can never get out, right? And uh, this is important because Abraham says to the rich man, he says, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that, that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And there is a teaching that's arisen in the church over many, many years. Uh, it's called purgatory. And purgatory says you get a, a certain sentence in hell. And once you've done so many years in hell, then you get out. And so based on how good you are this side of the grave, based on how much you pray, you can shorten that sentence. Or you can pray for the dead and shorten their sentence. Friends, this morning you need to know that once you land up in either heaven or hell, there is no moving between the two. It is done. And this is why Jesus tells the parable. It's because, remember, he's defending his ministry. And he's saying, Pharisees and scribes, don't you understand why I'm going after these sinners and tax collectors? It's because what's at stake is eternal destiny. It's not making your synagogue look good or making your friendship circle look good with respectable people. What's at stake is heaven or hell. And the reason why I'm attracting these people to me and why I'm going after them is because unless they find me, they have no hope. And so, why should we preach on hell? And to ask myself the question, and if I'm very honest with you this morning, it is the first time this text is the first text in my not that long preaching ministry that I've ever preached on hell. And I think what's happened in the church is there has been an abuse of this in the past. Maybe you're like my parents. They got saved in a, in a, in a church <laughs> where every Sunday night the preacher was dripping with sweat from preaching fire and brimstone, right? Now, my parents got saved, praise the Lord. And it shows you that even if it's a certain slant or kind of preaching, praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit still works. But what happened is there was a reaction, and you need to know about this today. There was a strong reaction within the church and the world against this doctrine of hell. And it has damaged us badly. And the reason why these prosperity teachers get away with their preaching and their sorts of doctrine is because there is no longer much preaching about the afterlife in particular hell. And so if I had to give my defense for why I want to preach on this uncomfortable topic this morning, it is because first and foremost Jesus did. Jesus actually, according to one commentator, preached more on hell than he did on heaven. And his command to us is that in Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20, we are to make disciples of all nations, but what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Secondly, the reason why it's important to preach on hell is because it's so easy to live and think like the rich man and end up in the same place he did. Christians, what is motivating you in your life at the moment? Because I'm, I, it, it breaks my heart to say that when the world looks at the church currently, they don't see much difference. And the reason is, 
in the church itself, we exalt the same things the world does. But Jesus was so clear. He says those things that the world praises and runs after, it's detestable, it's loathed by him. Why? Because in terms of eternity, it has zero significance. That bank account you are striving so after, I've got to break it to you. You're not taking a cent of that with you when you go into heaven one day. That relationship you are sacrificing obedience to Jesus over, you will not take with you into heaven one day. That marriage you make excuses for, that you don't obey Christ, that marriage will be dissolved in heaven. Nobody is married in heaven. Friends, the naked truth about heaven and hell is this. What we run after as a world, this side of the grave, pays zero dividends in the next. And the risk is this, and this is why I preach on it this morning, for myself as well, is that our ability as a church to be useful in the hands of Jesus only comes as we are ready for heaven. Your usefulness on earth is determined by your readiness for heaven. Because a person who understands where they're finally going to land, it makes them think differently about their life, about their relationships, about the opportunities God presents them. And they live light. But there is something more precious. And these next two points are so important. It is this, is that hell makes us thankful for our salvation. You know what the lack of preaching on hell has robbed the church of? The awesomeness of Jesus in his rescue of us. Because when you start to realize what our destiny was, Jesus becomes the most precious, wonderful, gracious Savior. And I put it to you this morning, our passion for Jesus is largely related to our understanding of what we were rescued from. And for you this morning, maybe you're struggling a little bit in your walk with Jesus in sensing a desire for Him in your life and worship for Him. Just spend five or ten minutes thinking about what He's rescued you from. And lastly, why preach on hell? is that it makes us more fervent in evangelism. You know, I love the way God works. Joe rocks up at this time and this hour, last week at the Ridge here at Sterling, and she shares about this country that God has called her to. You know, the only reason why, Paul, why, 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 why um, Joe would go to that country is because she believes eternal destinies are at stake. I've seen where Joe lives. It's not a very attractive apartment. <laughs> Facing bombs on the corner, gunshots at night. It's because these people are precious to her. Why? Because she knows that unless they find Jesus, what hope do they have? And it will drive the Christian to the coldest, darkest corner of the earth. You want to know why we lack missional zeal, church? It's because we don't understand what the world is going to and I preach this to myself, it is good for us to contemplate what we are born into. It makes us fervent in evangelism. And so my friends, what is hell? Hell is a place of torment and anguish. It is the place where the most fervent prayer meeting for mercy exists, but where none is given. This rich man cries out to Abraham, 
Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. There is a cry for mercy and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. He cries out for mercy, but you want to know what hell is? Fundamentally, it is the absence of mercy. Right now, you and I are living off the mercy of God, whether you are a Christian or not. We are living off the mercy of His creation, of His what John Calvin calls common grace, where we get to enjoy the comfort of what it means to have this creation close to us. Friends, in hell, there is no mercy. Also, in hell, we will have all of our senses. This rich man can call, he feels, he tastes, he thirsts, he sees, he hears, and he also has all of his memories. Abraham says to him, child, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things. He can remember. And lastly, what is the purpose of hell? Well, it is the eternal punishment of sin. And the weight of what we're preaching on this morning can be summed up in this statement is that God can only punish sin in two ways. One is the blood of Jesus, which satisfies him 100%. Or the fires of hell. And do you want to know why hell burns for eternity? It is because its fire never satisfies God's justice. Only the blood of Jesus does. And so you might be saying this morning, well, what proof of hell do you have, Matt? Well, the proof is the Bible. And I'll say to you, if you don't believe what God's Word says, you won't believe anybody. And that's fundamentally what Abraham's answer to this rich man is. He says, send Lazarus from the dead. Go tell my brothers, these five brothers of mine, that they need to be rescued. And Abraham says, if they will not listen to God's Word, well, then there's no hope. And I want to say this morning, and I say this respectfully, but I am deadly serious that you might not believe me now, but there will come a day when you will. And that day will be too late. So I share all of this because my third point is how are we to be ready for heaven in the reality of hell? Well, this morning Jesus has already said in his preamble to the story that he says the law and the prophets were until John there was a period of time the Old Testament finished in a sense with John the Baptist but since the good news of the kingdom of God is but since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it or everyone is forcefully urged into it what Jesus is saying in his coming in his very person there is a new era that has been ushered in, and it is in Christ, in his person, what he did and what he achieved. Something called the good news is preached. And this morning, in order to be ready for heaven, there is something you must believe. And it is called, as Jesus said, the good news or the gospel. And you might be asking yourself, well, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe in the gospel, the good news? Well, Jesus tells us in his nickname that he gives for heaven. He calls it Abraham's bosom or side. In other words, he says, you get to heaven the same way Abraham did. 
And this is the most radical thing for somebody who's hearing it for the first time. And I want to argue this morning for Christians who have believed it long ago, let it refresh your heart and mind towards the mercy of God. You see, one day there was a guy called Abraham, and God encountered Abraham's life out of the blue and came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, my boy. And from you, through your seed, every family of every nation is going to be blessed. That seed ultimately was the forerunner of Jesus. Jesus was a descendant of Abraham by the flesh. Do you know how Abraham was saved? He just believed God's word as it came to him. And scripture says in that moment of saying, God, you've said it. I believe it. Scripture says in that moment, Abraham was made right with God. That is one of the most profound, wonderful truths about the Christian faith. Abraham didn't know a lot about God. In actual fact, his, his parents were moon worshippers. Abraham didn't do a lot for God. He actually wasn't too sure who God was. Abraham's life was not pretty. Let me tell you, he made some bad mistakes. But the thing that opened up heaven to Abraham and a right standing with God was not works or knowledge or a heritage of faith. It was the moment God intersected his life and said, Abraham, I have a promise for you from your seed. An amazing man is going to come and he's going to be the blessing for the world. And he didn't know his name, Jesus Christ. But Abraham said, God, if you say it, I believe it. I align myself with your word. And in that second, Abraham was saved. But you see, Jesus again uses a word in this parable that is critical for the moment that God's word comes to you. And it is a word that is called repent. And repent is a very, very simple word. It means to change your mind. Now, why on earth would Scripture include that? It is because of this. Is that when the good news comes to you at first, it sounds like bad news. <laughs> Do you know how the gospel comes to your life? It first tells you how bad you are. It's a very important point. Because until that moment sinks into your heart, Jesus is just a symbol. He's possibly just a swear word. He is the faith of your mother or your father or your husband. But the second God's word comes to your life, the first thing it tells you is that you are a sinner like me. And you have a choice in that moment to either defend yourself. And as a pastor, let me tell you, that is one of my biggest struggles. When people come into the office, it comes, it's a bit easier for me. Or when there's a funeral that, that I'm going to be doing this week, for instance, and the family starts to talk about God, what the biggest struggle is, is that they cannot come to the place of understanding their own sin. And you know the phrase that we like to use, right? None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. I try to be good try to do some things, try to pray. Friends, until we see the depths of our own sin, we are not ready for the gospel. And I want to challenge you this morning. 
How do you view yourself before God? Because if it's just a pretty picture of coming to church and doing cosmetic stuff with your hands or with your voice or even with God's word, I want to say the moment of change comes is when you are willing to receive something that's very painful about yourself. And it is this, that when God sees you, he doesn't see the pretty picture that you see about yourself. What he sees, like when he sees me, is a man and a woman desperately in need of rescue because we are on the trajectory to hell. And there is nothing, nothing in you, no ounce of sweat, no ounce of intelligence, no ounce of heritage in your life that can make you acceptable before God. And the moment you realize it, that's the moment the gospel can come. It's how defensive are you before God's word this morning? And I'll put it to you like this, the gospel first offends before it saves. And if you're offended this morning by the thought that God sees you as a sinner and that you're going to hell, I'm praising the Lord for it because you know why? For the first time, perhaps, you're starting to understand the way God sees you. And when you start to understand the way God sees you, the first time, it's the first time you can actually say, I understand why Jesus came, because I'm in need of a Savior. Can I put it to you this morning? Our great struggle is we want to be the rich man in the story when God is saying we need to become like the beggar. How does a beggar receive anything? He stretches out an empty hand. He's got nothing in his life to recommend him. In actual fact, every act of kindness shown to a beggar is an act of grace. Because the person giving that is getting nothing back in return. And I want to put it to you this morning. Is that you have to let God's word come to you and tell you who you really are. That's the bad news. But remember, it's called good news. Is that as you see the depths of your own sin, it shows you the depths of your need for a savior. And I want to ask you this morning. Have you run to Jesus for mercy? Or are you still trying to put up the show that your systems during the week, your balancing acts of right and wrong are somehow enough for God to receive you? Do you know how salvation comes to a life? It's the second the person stretches out an empty hand and says, Jesus, I need mercy. I need mercy. I need mercy. And that great hymn writer described it like this. He says, Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to your cross I cling. That's salvation. Does that describe you? Because if it doesn't, you're not saved. But the hope of this morning is this. It is one cry away. None of us here this morning have impressed God in zero way, in any way. You know what the difference is? Is we've just come a bit sooner to understanding what we really like before God. And we found mercy. And I ask you this morning, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What is the reason why you will not lay hold of Jesus? Are you waiting for a sign? Are you wanting God to show you something miraculous in your life? 
Well, may I just quickly point you to the parable. This is what the rich man asked for. He said, go back, send Lazarus. He hasn't quite understood that his wealth has no status in, in, in hell. He wants to command this, this beggar guy to go do his bidding. But he says, send him back so that my brothers will believe. I want to say to you this morning, Abraham's response is for you. Is the way salvation comes is not in a sign. The way salvation comes is whether or not you will receive it as God's word. Faith is a humbling thing. It only proves itself on the other side. But God will have it no other way. Is you must respond to his word. You must respond to the gospel. Signs and wonders, they are great. But they point to the same thing. God's word. And his word proclaims Christ. What are you waiting for? And I leave you with this thought. Christians, are you ready for heaven? I'll ask it again. Christians, are you ready for heaven? Then let's live like it. Let's live like it. And I want to ask you a second question. Is your family ready? Is your spouse ready? Are your colleagues ready? Are your friends ready? The more we think about hell and heaven, the more useful we are to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that has gone out this morning. And I know your hand has been upon it. And I know your hand is working in hearts here. And Lord, we want to give opportunity for the Spirit in this moment to minister the good news to those who need it. And this morning, I know that there are people here who need Jesus that they have lived with an understanding that has not been helpful of themselves, but this morning you've seen your sin for the first time. And I want to ask you this morning, will you respond to it? Forget about outside for the moment. Forget about the person next to you. This has eternal consequences for you. And I want you to respond to Jesus. If that's you this morning, I want to help you. Do you feel your sin this morning? Do you feel it? I want you to take that sin to Jesus now. And I want you to say to Jesus, Jesus, I have sinned against you. I'm not defending my life at all. You know it all. And I want you to say to Jesus, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in your death on the cross for my sin. 
and I'm asking you for mercy. Will you say that to Jesus? I'm asking you for mercy. Save me. If that's you this morning, I want to say what you have done before the Lord is something life-changing. We'd love you to come and tell us here in front, but this morning, you need to know that God is calling you to live in preparation for heaven. Christians, this morning, God is calling you to live in preparation for heaven. And so, Lord, we give ourselves afresh to you, Jesus. So much is at stake here. The way we think about our work and families and friends, the way we think about you and our own salvation, Lord, would you just come and wash over us again and deepen this incredible sense of not only gratitude to you, Jesus, but the call of Christ for the opportunities presented to us in the lives around us. We want to be a useful church to you, Jesus. We want to be a living church for you, Jesus. Help us. Amen.